This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Wanna say, wanna say, wanna say it. So among our most read stories on the Bloomberg is about AT&T and Time Warner getting together. We will get a decision today on the fate of that $85.4 billion deal. Of course, AT&T has sought to buy Time Warner. Let's uh, get into this with Eric Larson, our U.S. legal reporter at Bloomberg News uh, at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., where that decision will come down. Also, Brad Adgate, independent media analyst, formerly with Horizon Media. He's on the phone from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Eric, I do want to kick it off with you. Um, um, you have a great story on the Bloomberg, and you said getting a front row seat to it all in the courtroom because you can, but you got to pay up for it. Really? Well, it, it's not required, but if you want to get a seat uh, in this particular court and in, as in any other really busy court hearing, uh, you can pay line sitters to uh, sit uh, in the hallway for hours before it begins or even uh, overnight out on the sidewalk, which is what happened in this case, uh, because there are so many people who want to make sure that they were in the courtroom today to get this decision first. And you say it's $36 an hour, Eric. I, I'm really thinking about uh, trading this job in for that one. <laughs> well, I have to say uh, they have been uh, providing these services uh, throughout the entire six-week trial, uh, and uh, they, they look pretty bored, I have to say, uh, sitting for hours on end, but it is easy money. But today is D-Day, and what are we expecting? Eric, do we have any idea about how this might come down? We really don't. I mean, it's just pure speculation uh, which way the judge is going to go here. Uh, judge uh, Leon is known to be uh, pretty unpredictable. Uh, he, you know, he, he gave some hints during the trial in terms of uh, being a little bit skeptical about some of the government's uh, expert uh, testimony from their expert witness. Um, but really, that uh, can't be uh, seen to go where or the other for sure. So right. really, uh, we will find out soon, and I think everyone is uh, in the dark. Brett. Brad Adgate in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi. I, could you go I, over for us the possible – you say that there are three possible outcomes to this. Can you quickly go over what those three are? Well, I think um, if the deal fails – um, you know, I, uh, that, the, that Judge Leon just, you know, blocks the deal. You know, I don't think AT&T will be going after, you know, buying another content provider, and Time Warner would probably look for, you know, some sort of other deal to happen, and what other, what, what will that happen to other proposed deals that are, these are called like vertical deals, you know, will happen. Um, I think the, the uh, if the deal passes, I think, uh, you know, you'll see a lot of, uh, uh, innovation from Time Warner, you'll see skinny bundles and a la carte services, and obviously Comcast is going to make a cash-only deal to buy Fox's assets in competition with, with Disney, and perhaps you'll see Verizon or Dish uh, go out and try and buy another content provider who are the biggest uh, competitors to AT&T and DirecTV. And I think really the, the, the gray area is if there's any regulations. So, you know, what, what is the judge going to do? I mean, some of them I think are deal breakers. For instance, if the judge says, yeah, this deal can go through, but you've got to sell off DirecTV, I, I don't see AT&T doing that or even, 
you know, Turner Broadcasting, if they're going to do some deals like, uh, you know, retrans- some agreements that they have to go to arbitration for retransmission uh, agree- agreements with, with AT&T's competitors, I think AT&T said that they'd be willing to do that, and I think the deal will go through. But that's, you know, that, that's a gray area right now. And, I, and, and uh, you know, obviously Comcast, when they bought NBC in, in 2011, the Department of Justice put on something like 150 regulations in, into the agreement, which is kind of similar to this deal. Now, Brad, did you lose a lot of money on the, uh, on the Belmont stakes like I did? Because I'm going <laughs> to ask you a betting question. Which, do, which outcome do you think is most likely? I think it's going to be that there'll be some regulations, but it won't be enough to to to, uh, to 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 ruin the deal. In other words, I think that they will put on some regulations about you know retransmission consent fees and some sort of agreements, to, you know, to keep uh, to keep it competitive. But uh, but I, I don't really think that um, I, I I think the deal will go through, and I think conven- and Eric maybe can address this better than I. But I think conventional wisdom is, is that this deal will go through. I think the question is what the conditions will be, if any. Eric Larson, if, if indeed the judge comes back and says this can't happen, um, is that it then for AT&T? Well, there, there is the speculation that they would appeal, of course. Um, and uh, I think that and, until they let us know the decision on that, it would be hard to say it was a, it was a done deal. But um, if it's if, if if they are required to shed some assets or some other remedy like that, I think they did indicate in court during the trial that something like that would essentially be a deal breaker. So um, again, it's all up in the air right now, but we'll find out. You know, Brad Adgate, I just got about a minute left here. I mean, I just yeah. feel like there are so many delivery systems. I mean, I don't know. Are, are, are regulators keeping up to date on kind of the changing way we get content and the so many different places we can get it? I mean, is it harder to prove kind of antitrust concerns at this point? Well, I think that AT&T's yeah. argument is that the media landscape is moving so quickly and, and you know, Google and Facebook are growing, uh, you know, double-digit gains in, in ad dollars while television remains flat. You know, Netflix has all of this information about how popular their programming is, and Time Warner really doesn't. What they need is the data from AT&T's set-top boxes to kind of help them target better uh, their viewers, but also to target advertisers better. So... I, I, I think, look, this, yeah. this isn't going away. I mean, this is just going to grow. Netflix has more subscribers than HBO Go yeah. and HBO, um, the, the te- television network has. So, yeah. you know, it's really moving rapidly. All right. Got to go. Thank you guys so much. Brett Adgate, independent media analyst, uh, formerly with Horizon Media, on the phone from Cambridge. Eric Larson, our U.S. legal reporter at Bloomberg News at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. Our next guest rightly decries the lack of women in finance, and her research shows that private equity is just as bad as everybody. (laughs) Her name is Carolyn Vardy, and she is a partner at the White and Case Law Firm, and she's here in our studio. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks very much, Bob. Thanks for having me, Carolyn Bob. Nice to have you here. uh, What did you find out? Well, what I found was, first, not surprising at all, that much like the rest of Wall Street, uh, women in private equity are having a really hard time succeeding. And really globally, uh, even though private equity is on the rise and surging over the past number of years, uh, women haven't really been getting head through the ranks in private equity. 
Well, according to Prequin, uh, which you quote, is a private equity research firm, that women account for only 18% of employees at PE firms and 9% of the senior positions globally. What's holding them back? Such a good question. I think the problem that women in private equity have been having is uh, similar to the rest of Wall Street. Um, First, it was getting through the door. And I think over the past number of years, private equity firms have started to change their focus to recruit junior women more actively. So now they're starting to get through the door. And the question is, how do you keep them and how do you move them up the ranks? And private equity funds have really been struggling with that question. I mean, it's the same as we're seeing in throughout the financial industry, to be fair, right? I mean, it, it's interesting. I think, um, was it last week in Business Week, we took a look at getting an MBA. And a lot of B-schools are trying to be much more active in recruiting women to go after MBAs. Because if you don't increase the pipeline, whether it's to go to an investment bank, whether it's to go to private equity, right? If they're not there, it's hard to increase them in the ranks. And that's such an interesting point because what you see a lot on the public company side is that there's mandates for boards to have a third composition of women or have more women in the C-suite. And it's hard to fill those requirements when you don't have the pipeline of women to draw from. So really the focus really needs to be about moving these women up more actively so that we have that pipeline. And I think what's really notable for private equity now is that they have this problem, they've recognized this problem, their investors have recognized this problem, and they're starting to focus on trying to figure out how to solve for it. Because as, uh, as McKinsey's found out that research, uh, their research says that the companies with more women are more profitable. And also, clients are demanding more women in positions of power. Kind of that ESG thing, right? Absolutely. And so what's really interesting... Environmental, social governments, I mean, governance. Like, this is what people... More and more investors, it's not just that they really want to see that in their investment. That's right. And so the limited partners who invest their money with the private equity funds are demanding that they get data and they get results and they see that their money is being put to work by groups of people who are diverse and being invested into companies, the platform companies that are diverse themselves. And so just as an interesting anecdote on that, we all know it's a very strong market right now. Sellers dictate terms. They dictate price. And the pressure on private equity funds to buy is enormous. So on the due diligence front that a lot of lawyers deal with, our time frame to do the due diligence is compressed, and we really have to focus on what really is ma- what really matters and what's really material. And what's always on our due diligence questionnaire when so much else falls off is ESG, really, environmental social governance. Absolutely, wow. And That's and private equity funds have to report on that to their investment committees, right? Huh. So, so while the rest of the world burns, investors want more ESG. <laughs> I don't know if the rest of the world is burning yet. It's smoldering. How about that? Will you agree to that? Um, She is an attorney after all. We have to... Yes. We have to maintain... Yes. No, but it's interesting because ESG, I feel like, for a while was, for many years, was, okay, it's kind of a cool thing to do, and I don't necessarily expect the returns or whatever, but it's, it's become more mainstream, and more and more investors, bigger investors, are saying, let's make sure it's a good investment, financially sound, but let's also make sure there's women, there's diversity. They're thinking about things like the environment. I mean, this is all important. That's absolutely right. And those investors are requiring data on that, and they're requiring results. Carolyn, why did you do this research? You just got about 30 seconds left here. I'm just curious. 
Especially private equity. I'll tell you why. I see a change, and I'm very optimistic. We're not in a great spot right now, but I'm optimistic about the future. And when I started off, I never had to introduce myself more than one time on a conference call because I was the only female voice on on that line. And now, anecdotally, I'm not. And that's amazing. The numbers are still low, and there's a lot of work to do. But I think that the trends and the pressures are in the right place to show real results. I can't help but feel that, you know, uh, with more awareness about this sort of thing, plus the Me Too movement, that we've kind of hit an inflection point. At least I'm hoping that that change happens after this. I am firmly in that camp. I hope so as well. And I'm very optimistic. I think it's going to be a hard road and a long road, but I'm optimistic. Carolyn, thanks so much for coming by. Much appreciated. Carolyn Barty, she's private equity and M&A partner over at White & Case in our New York studio. Yes, indeed. Just a headline a short while ago uh, that Tesla is going to be cutting a bunch of jobs. And we do have the stock a little bit uh, higher today, up about 2.2%. was up as much as almost 7% today. But let's make some sense, put it into perspective, and we've got the perfect person to do that. Dana Hall is Bloomberg News Technology reporter, covers uh, Tesla for us. She's on the phone from San Francisco. And I just, you tweeted a short while ago, kind of putting these job cuts from Tesla into perspective. Let's walk through the news. Tesla cutting about 9% of its workers. Uh, Dana, significant, not significant? What kind of workers are we talking about? Well, nine, 9% is a big number at any, yeah. at any company. Let's be clear. It's not that it's not that, cool. it's not that far off from 10%. Um, but Tesla has roughly 40,000 employees globally, and they continue to actively hire for a lot of positions as they kind of, you know, attempt to transition from this niche automaker to this global manufacturer. So even though they're laying off or letting go of 9%, they're still going to continue to actively hire. But my suspicion is that, um, you know, Tesla acquired SolarCity in 2016 and absorbed a ton of people in sales and marketing in, in the solar division. And, and what Elon Musk's memo says is that there, are, there were a lot of people doing duplicate, duplicative roles. So I think, you know, he said that he's trying to do a thorough reorg. 9% certainly seems like it's part of that. And this will clearly, you know, help the company as it tries to achieve profitability. Dana, we keep saying 9%, but that's about 3,400 people. That's, that's a sizable amount of people there. Yeah, no, it's quite a lot. Um, I mean, it's it's not insignificant. But at the same time, you know, Tesla has really grown very fast. And I don't think it's surprising now that the Solar City merger is about two years behind us and they are through, you know, the hardest part or, or they claim to be through the hardest part of the Model 3 ramp that they are taking a look at you know, all operations and trying to find ways to streamline. You know, also the memo noted that they're kind of going to end this relationship with Home Depot to sell solar in the Home Depot stores. So Mm -hmm. um, I I think that's interesting as well. Well, and can I just say that if it was 9%, 10% of folks on the production line, Dana, this would be a whole different story. Yeah, they, they they were very clear that this is not production. Right. So, right. you know, I, I mean, everything, you know, marketing, sales, HR. I mean, I, I think that the, these are salaried people who work across the company, and Tesla has, you know, stores and service centers and locations around the globe. So we're, we don't have a, a sense as to where the bulk of these cuts are coming from. I think it's company-wide. A lot of the uh, attraction of this company, at least to people like me, uh, is that they're cool. And selling solar panels through Home Depot was kind of cool. So they're not going to do that anymore. What are they going to how – how were the sales through Home Depot doing and what are they going to do instead? 
Well, Tesla has its own stores, and I think, you know, originally they had some channel partners to try to kind of goose solar sales. Uh, you know, Home Depot was one of them, and, and now they're just realizing that maybe that wasn't super effective, so they're ending that relationship at the end of the year and are going to just focus on their own retail footprint and their own sales channels. One of the things that uh, that Elon Musk touts in his memo to the to the workforce is that Tesla and Ford remain the only American car companies who haven't gone bankrupt. Um, that doesn't seem like you know such a uh, enthusiastic, rousing uh, thing to uh, to hang your hat on. How how? And I know that you're probably sick to death of hearing this this question. But when is this company going to start making money? Well, I mean, I think, you know, so in terms of Ford, what Musk just tries to emphasize over and over and over again is that it's very difficult to start a car company from scratch. No one thought that Tesla would survive this long. A lot of other companies have tried and failed and gone bankrupt or been acquired. Tesla is still at it, but they have yet to make profit. They have yet to make an annual profit. And that's a fair criticism of Tesla that he is trying to address. Um, So I think now he's kind of addressing that, like, you know, and in part by becoming a leaner, uh, organization. And I believe, you know, his view is that once they get through these Model 3 production ramp issues and, and start getting cars out the door, they will recognize the revenue on those cars and be profitable at some point. But he's made a lot of assumptions about profitability that have not turned out to be true. So it's definitely a make, a, make or break year for them. Hey, Dana, do you think it's a little weird? What was it, just a week ago that they had their shareholder meeting, right? And, and the stock soared on Elon Musk's confidence when he kind of laid out the production goals for, for Model 3, for the Model 3. Why? He probably knew about these job cuts then. Why wasn't it rolled into that meeting? I'm not really sure. I mean, a shareholder meeting is is not typically a place where where Elon announces news. It's okay. more a chance for you know diehard fans and longtime investors, and the retired folks who have time to take off during the day. <laughs> not us. And, I know to come see him and ask questions. Um, uh, you know, I, I think you know people. It, the stock kind of rose just because he sounded optimistic, um, and it sounded like the worst was behind him. And, and that's and it's an emotional stock, and and uh, people kind of trade based on emotions and how Elon seems to be doing. So that, that's sort of what happened then. But yeah, I'm sure. I mean, nine percent. It's not something that you. Um, do lightly. And I, I think it's also just interesting that, you know, we're almost to the end of the quarter here. So um, that, that's sort of interesting timing as well. Yeah. The way the way you paint the whole situation uh, leads me to, to think, well, why didn't they lay off a bunch of people earlier, uh, you know, sooner after they uh, acquired Solar City if there was so much duplication? Sure. Well, and they did. I mean, they did do. They laid off about 700 people in in October of last year. Uh, I remember that got a lot of news coverage as well. So they have, you know, and and then there's also just natural attrition. I mean, the Bay Area is a vibrant place to live. People who have experience at Tesla don't typically have a hard time finding another job. I mean, there's been a natural attrition rate as well. Uh, so that's not super surprising. But yeah, this this is sort of the this is the first kind of big, you know, round of layoffs that we've heard of in a while. All right. So here we go. We've got this. What's our next, I don't know, is there something on the calendar? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? I mean, what's the next thing that you're kind of watching out for? Well, so I just think it's always very interesting, you know, as you get into the end of the quarter, trying to figure out what Tesla's production rate really is. What is the build target that the production workers are being told to hit? How full is that parking lot in Fremont? And 
you know, Elon Musk sounded very optimistic that they would be able to hit this 5,000 Model 3 a week run rate uh, by the end of June or early July. So, like, where are they now? Are they making mm. 3,500 Model 3s a week, or is it 4,000? And if they hit that rate, are they going to be able to sustain it? Because you can hit it once, but, like, you really need to be hitting right. it regularly and they've never pr- they still have not proven that they can do that. So the next big data point for me is in early July, probably over the July 4th weekend, yeah. we'll find out what their second quarter uh, production and delivery numbers are and that's a key number. And he's still saying he doesn't need any more capital, right? He has said he doesn't need more capital. Mm. However, I will note the fact that his stock price is now quite high again, and he's, you know, cutting employees may make it an easier job to raise capital should he choose to do so. Kind of interesting, right? Good stuff, as always. Uh, Yeah, you've got uh, Tesla right now just up about uh, 9%. Um, Donna, thank you so much. Donna Hall, Bloomberg News technology reporter on the phone from San Francisco. You can follow her, too, on Twitter. Check out all of her stories, too, at Bloomberg.com. So, yeah, I mean, Bob, Tesla shares are up about 9% so far this year. They've been bouncing around up another 2% in today's session. You know, Musk uh, on Twitter, he really bashed the press not long ago. And I just have to put in a word for Donna Hall. She does a great job Uh. of reporting for Bloomberg from San Francisco on this company. Yeah, she really does. Digs into it uh, with all of its nuances. Well, the big story, of course, today, the U.S. and North Korea agreeing to seek complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, That's following a historic summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. No deadline set yet, though, and it really left the path to disarmament a bit undefined. Let's talk about this and what might be the path forward with Max Baucus, former U.S. Senator and U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama. I'm a former Democratic senator from Montana on the phone from Washington, D.C. Ambassador Baucus, nice to have you here with Bob and myself. Safe to say, though, at this point, this was a historic meeting to get the U.S. and North Korea together. No question. Uh, 80% of life is showing up. Trump, uh, <laughs> Trump showed up, Kim showed up, and they're talking. They're talking positive. That's good news. There's a headline that came across the Bloomberg today. It says, China gets everything it wanted from Trump's meeting with Kim. Do you agree with that? I agree that China got a lot. Um, China foreign minister put out a very positive statement. Uh, second, China has been urging over the last few years, the United States and North Korea to, to do the talking, to try to get a resolution there. China wanted to stay on the sidelines, but China also advocated that um, there be a, 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 a double freeze, that is, a freeze in North Korean nuclear expansion and a freeze in U.S. Um, joint military operations. So this isn't quite that, but it's what China's been advocating. And not only that, China very much wants diminished U.S. military presence uh, from the peninsula. They like the thought of canceling joint military exercises, and they certainly would like to get us out even more. Well, we, we have China as a, as a winner. Who, in your mind, is a loser? I don't think anybody lost. Um, certainly, we're talking, Trump and Kim. That's good. Um, the other countries may be losing a little because President Trump is making decisions a little on the fly here. We don't know what he agreed to privately with with Kim outside the, the joint declaration. He's not really consulting with Japan that much or South Korea. The U.S. military were unaware, caught unawares with the decision. I think, frankly, we, America, we won, we're winning, but we come across a little bit weak 
on a comparative basis. Uh, Kim Jong-un got what he wanted earlier with with nuclearization. He, he got the bomb. The second, he got the visit with Trump. That's a big win. We didn't get anything, really, except promises from Kim to to denuclearize. But as we know, there are promises, and we'll have to wait and see. I mean, what China really wants, right, we know that they oppose North Korea's nuclear weapons, but it also wants to prevent a collapse of Kim's regime regime or any kind of war on the uh, Korean peninsula. He doesn't want any kind of instability. Have we made a step towards that, or that's, again, to be seen? I think that's a good point. I think uh, we have moved in that direction. We're moving toward uh, uh, a peace agreement, a a treaty between North and South Korea, getting rid of the armistice. China likes that. They like to see a of China, excuse me, North Korea legitimized as a, as a separate nation, which keeps at least half of the peninsula in, in China's orbit, doesn't allow the peninsula to be more in, in the U.S. orbit. So China's happy with, with that. And it's interesting, too, that we saw China voicing support almost right after the meeting between President uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, China voicing support for revisiting economic sanctions against the North Korean regime. So they moved in pretty swiftly to say, you know, let's think about maybe getting rid of this. That's right. I think we lost the leverage. You yeah. gain something, you lose something. We gained, you know, meeting with, with, with Kim. I think that's good. But we lost leverage in the sense that once you start talking legitimizing uh, Kim, then naturally you're going to start to lose little leverage on sanctions because Korea's, South Korea is going to want to do a little deal with uh, with Kim, as will China, as will Russia. Um, so it's it's it's, it's nat- there's naturally going to be a reduction of, of, of sanctions. It's you know that's not all bad. Um, it's going to help the North Korean people. But it does reduce some leverage um, to get Kim to reduce. I, I think in the end we're not going to see denuclearization. That's just not going to happen. Kim's not going to give that up. Because, He's going to give up a little bit, just yeah. a little bit, to, to get some economic relief. Because he has nothing without that, correct? That's right. And uh, we can say, oh, we'll guarantee no regime change, Chairman Kim. Mm-hmm. We'll guarantee you're always the man, you're always there. But he can't trust that if he doesn't have a, a significant military and nuclear capability. You can't, you know, presidents come and go, a promise a president might make, might not be there for the next president. Uh, this president sometimes changes his mind. So the, really the only guarantee he has for security is significant uh, military slash nuclear capability. Ambassador, we we only have a, a, a little bit of time left, but I did want to sneak one question in about domestic politics, since there is a contentious race for uh, the Senate seat in your hometown, on your home state, Montana. Do you think John Tester is going to keep that seat? Just about ten seconds. I do, I, I do. John's a down to earth kind of guy. If you know John, he's a guy who's got that flat top haircut. He's missing a couple of fingers. <laughs> he's just a great farmer. He's a good guy. People like that. Yeah. All right. right. Ambassador Max Baucus, thank you so much. Appreciate uh, your time today, of course. Uh, Former senator from the state of Montana joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. Doug Sioka back with us, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $610 million in assets under management. Doug back with us on the phone from Leewood, Kansas, joining myself and Bob Avery. Hey, nice to have you back. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. Man, the days are dense and packed, but I've said that, I think, to you before. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, what a week, and it's only Tuesday. I said to Paul, the only thing hotter than the headlines is the weather in Kansas City this week. It's amazing. <laughs> so what are you guys talking about in Kansas City? Tell me what, you know, you sit down to dinner with folks, and what's the first thing that everybody talks about? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the main thing, and, and sort of the headline and then sort of the sub uh, uh, subtitles or, or uh, the byline would be the volatility, of course. And, and the volatility is, so, is, is on people's minds because it was so absent for so long, and now it's back, and it's back with a vengeance. And I just put a piece out that just talked about this volatility is coming in waves, but it's, it's coming in repetitive waves. It's almost like we're in the second verse of a song, and, and it's the second verse is the same as the first. And the mm-hmm. first wave was all about interest rate gyrations and credit export volatility, and that began in January and took hold in February and big spikes in yields. And that dissipated, and people calmed down a little bit, and then it became the uh, crosshairs was on the geopolitics and everything attendant to congressional realignment and trade tariffs and uh, all things to do with Russia and Bob Mueller. And then that dissipated, and then we came to the end of the first quarter, and we had great earnings, but maybe not unbelievably great outlooks. And that was kind of wave three. And then we did that to mix metaphors. We did that wash, rinse, sanitize, and now we're repeating. Right? We saw yeah. more wave of credit export volatility. A tenure got above 3%. Now Trump just left Quebec, and he was in Singapore. Now Trudeau was being interviewed today. And we have all kinds of considerations as it relates to war games and, and, and trade tariffs extenuating, and then that'll take us into the end of the second quarter, and then we'll start more with earnings uh, consternation. And the VIX so, right now is just above 12. <laughs> of 12. <laughs> with all of that that you just 35. said. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It can move you're right. quickly. It's amazing. It can, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's what we learned is you don't want to be lulled into a false sense of mm. complacency or calm because that's typically going to be a, a temporary condition. But I think maybe the salve and, and the undercurrent beneath it all, even though the Fed is, and maybe we'll hear more tomorrow, begun its elegant exit is we do have a strong economy. And, and I saw that a little later you're going to have Greg Valieri on the program, who's just been so on and, and so much of his outlook and such a guiding force for all of us in the investment community. And he talks about the reason Trump's able to get away with what he is and the reason the world can look like it's in a complete disarray is because we do have strong underlying global economies right now. And as long as we can bend but not break, that's going to go a long way to providing stability. Doug, what do you when you when you sit down in Kansas City and, uh, and and talk about what's what's the what's the thing that you're worried about? What are the things in the in the course of the conversation or things that aren't so positive? Yeah, I, I think you worry about like making sure you're, you're you're fully come to grips, Bob, and knowing what you don't know. And our a goal with our clients is to be strategic in implementing our allocations, and it, it, it's easy to be passe and call all. Um, qualitative items noise, but some do have meaning. So making sure that we're sort of stripping through some of the headlines to understand the specific ramifications that could undermine the 
opportunities that we see and, and not just focus solely on the tactical piece, but constantly reinforce where opportunities are going to lie because of our long-term focus. So I guess kind of a roundabout way of saying is making sure our filtering mechanism is more quantitative than qualitative. So, okay, so where, what does that mean when you're right now putting some money to work? Where are you finding some opportunities, uh, Doug? Yeah, you know, what's kind of interesting? Question. You know, Dave Wilson's been talking about is it the consumer staples kind of moving around all of a sudden, and they've been, you know, really kind of hated all year. So, I, I don't know. Tell me where you're putting things. Well, we would line up not, not, not too opposite of what Dave is discussing because the staples have gone from a reasonably strong – um, overvaluation to a massive undervaluation, not only versus the broad market, but versus where they trade historically. And there's such a great mean reverting opportunity because they got thrown out as a sector because of their um, quality of being bond surrogate type investments. Right when you had a, a, right. a great company like a Procter and Gamble that had a two and a half percent yield premium over a ten-year bond, and now that's a one to one and a half percent yield premium, the optionality on the underlying stock is less attractive. So all things being equal, if you could buy a bond or a bond surrogate, money has tilted this year into bonds. So that has been an interesting opportunity as, as, as that sector has been forgotten for the underlying growth prospects that it still possesses. Yes, it's competitive. But what we've seen and we think we're going to see even more in that sector is there's going to be more of a wave of consolidation that takes place because scale is the only critical element that those companies can possess to compete effectively the way the world is moving. So we like the consumer staple sectors a lot. We actually even like some sectors of the bond market a lot. Really? We've seen such a significant backup in rates. You bet. Which part? Hey, just, just got about 20 seconds here. Which part? Which part along the yield curve? Yeah, we actually put a lot of uh, time and attention into foreign fixed income. Oh, okay. But in frontier-like countries, Carol. So yeah. as opposed to develop and even a little bit further down the cap curve, then emerging markets, we found a lot of opportunities in frontier markets that are paying significant yield premiums to develop and emerging to the tune of maybe 85 to 9%. All right. Great to check in with you, Doug. Thank you so much. Doug Sioka, he's Chief Executive Officer and Partner at Kavar Capital Partners. Uh, as we mentioned, about $610 million in assets under management. Doug joining us uh, on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.